screen and Well, good morning, everybody. How's everybody doing? Good. How's the how's the time change affect everybody? Positive, negative, don't really matter. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Waking up. That's right. Always makes you worry you're going to be late for church. But uh, it's nice to see y'all. Glad you're here. If you want to stand, we'll pray and we'll, we'll praise God. Father, we love you. Uh, we're here for you and you alone. Uh, may this be a great morning for, for you and your church. Uh, may we hear your word and praise you and grow, uh, even in the smallest way, closer to you today, uh, closer to each other. We thank you for all the wonderful things going on in your church right now. Um, just all the things we see happening in the community and here, and we praise you for that, for the spirit of joy we have. So pray going forward, especially we're going into this season of Easter holy week um that your blessings on it and us to be protected from from the evil one from evil attacks from anything that would take us away from focusing on you so we pray for all of us in this season that um, we keep our eyes fixed on you and the cross and we praise you through all of it uh, so we give you this time and i would pray for leonard as he preaches us as we hear and uh, let it be a great morning for you god love you As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. You alone are my heart's desire, and I long to worship thee.
Justice and your mercy Heaven walked the broken road Here to fight this sinner's battle Here to make my fall your own Turn my eyes to see your face as all my fears surrender. And hold my heart within this grace where burden turns to wonder. And I will fight to follow.
Well, thank you guys, and thanks uh, to Caleb and Josiah for uh, helping us out up here. I don't know if you know these guys or not, but um, Caleb, of course, is uh, Miss Amy's son, um, but uh, he'd just be preferred to be known as just, hey, I'm just, I'm just Caleb. I'm, 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 I'm buff, and I'm cool, which you are, by the way. So, um, anyway, nice to embarrass, you know, these young people. No, we love it. Isn't, it. isn't it just cool to have all that young energy here? I mean, I just, I, I, I think that uh, the thing that God is doing in our church has just been so exciting. And uh, each week, more and more, I just have this sense of anticipation that's growing. What's God going to do next? And, uh, you know, as a, as a leader here, uh, my role is to, is to not only ask that question, but to help us to, to lean into that and to push into that. And, um, and I really appreciate what Miss Amy has been doing here because, you know, my, my specialty, I think, in a lot of ways is, um, you know, I'm, I'm good at theology, I'm good at organization and culture and that sort of thing, but she is really good at ministry. 
And, uh, and that facet of what she's bringing to bear upon this body has just been wonderful. And uh, so in a lot of ways, she's teaching us a lot of things about how we care for the people around us. And uh, part of that includes how we touch the lives of the people within our community. And uh, it was so good because, uh, you know, part of our heart has always been how can we play a role in uh, helping the Hispanic community know the love of God. And uh, she came here with that burden as well. And I know on Wednesdays, uh, her and, um, and our friend Bill from Damascus Friends uh, here in town um, has uh, played a vital role in connecting with that community again. And so uh, this uh, past, um, well, yesterday, actually, uh, the Bright Side Project, who um, I'm just so thrilled that we have uh, Scott and Lisa here to work in that way to touch lives in ways that we are just not equipped to do. Uh, just partnering with them and trying to reach out to the Hispanic community, show them the love of Christ in whatever form that needs to take for their needs. Uh, so yesterday they gathered and they, they were able to just um, uh, uh, touch about 41 families. And uh, this is the Facebook post. And then there's some pictures also from Facebook describing what happened yesterday. And we had four people from our church that uh, were there helping out uh, uh, the team as they distributed uh, different things for the, the Hispanic, Hispanic families and uh, just uh, the things that are, are germane to their way of life right now. So we, um, we're glad to be a partner with all the good things that are happening that are done in Christ's name and uh, things that are good that uh, perhaps they're coming from a different place but have the same desire to meet that need. Either way, it's uh, servicing the kingdom. And I also appreciated what uh, ladies have been doing in the Connections group. Uh, yesterday, they put together some, um, make sure I pronounce this right, because uh, I'm not French, uh, charcuterie boards, is that, is that right? No, yes. You guys know what I mean. Okay. See me later about correcting me on my French. Um, maybe it's not even French. Maybe it's some other language. Uh, but anyway, we're taking that to our shut-ins uh, today, so that's pretty exciting. But what we're working on right now are just pathways where we can engage more and more people in serving. Because I honestly believe that most of us who have the joy of the Lord in our hearts want to find some pathway of expression. And our job is to try to bring that to bear upon the lives of the people within this community here and in the larger community of Salem and wherever else God leads. Uh, so that's a pretty cool thing. Uh, so we've had that happening, and we just want to celebrate that with uh, uh, the people that um, are involved in that and the people that will be blessed by that. Uh, that is the kind of church that we want to be coming out of um, uh, the season that we've been in. Um, so with that said, I also want to find out if there's anything on your heart or your mind uh, that we could be praying for, any burdens that you bring into this room or anything that um, uh, you want to you celebrate in your own right. I'd like to do that. Patty Pym. Okay, well, that's a very good way to put it uh, because, you know, to, to, to live as Christ and to die is to gain. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's the thing about having the hope that we have. It's not something to be feared, but rather it is something that as we go through it, we know Christ is going to be with us every step of the way. Okay, anything else that's happening? Twyla. What kind of trays were they again? <laughs> Just messing with you. Don't worry. Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that's cool. Well, um, there's some feedback for you guys, so well done. Anything else? All right. Well, let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll get into our message time. Our Lord Jesus, we are grateful that as we gather today, we have this living hope that is inside of us, that's expressed through the, the songs that we have lifted before your throne and laid at your feet. And we pray that you'd find that pleasing. And we thank you, Father, that we live in that space between grace and truth, where your transformation happens, where you call us into the realities of your kingdom, and yet you know that we are not exactly a perfect fit for that, and your grace is sufficient to keep us moving forward into that place where we grow to long for the things of you more and more, and uh, the things that were our obsession as the song is described so eloquently um, become less and less of a priority. And we're grateful for the joy that flows out of that pursuit. And for young lives that see that, and hopefully as we who have been a little bit farther along on the timeline try to embody that more and more, uh, they, they, they see us also uh, just living into that reality. So, Father, we thank you for being with those who were able to serve our community yesterday, especially our, our Hispanic uh, brothers and sisters, and we pray that you continue to bless all that uh, we're trying to do in building bridges and relationships and camaraderie in the Lord. Uh, we just pray that your kingdom presence would uh, just create a stronger footprint in, in their lives as that's happening in our own. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in East Palestine as each week is a new chapter in what is such a devastation for the lives of the people there and their homes and their families and their prospects. I pray, Father, that you help us to, to continue to have that vision for that need as long as uh, you see that need and you see the gap there and the opportunity for churches and community people to just uh, bring to bear the things that you call us to do and to bring resource-wise into those lives. And so keep that alive in the ways that it needs to be kept alive for us and for them. And help us, Father, to just um, uh, be aware of the needs uh, from week to week in our own personal lives as we know people there and as we think about the question, God, what would you have me do to help out uh, our, our, our friends who are suffering so much in that region? And Lord, thank you for the way that I've seen you work and people that have spoken to me pastorally about answering that need. And I pray that as they come to see that call, that you provide what is necessary in that right. And thank you, Father, for helping us to just recognize um, our own need and our own lack as um, we come more and more to realize uh, the place that you, Lord Jesus, uh, need to fill in, in the spaces of our lives that have been, um, been, had a no vacancy sign for you. And God, we know that you go where you are wanted. And as we recognize our own lack, uh, we do see that we want you more and more. And thank you for the blessing that the reality of your presence brings to bear upon our lives, our church, our community. Um, Lord, we've grown to distrust less and less those things that try to replace you, like government and programs and, and this and that and the other thing, the economy, the markets, all the places of security and resourcing that we know are found actually in you. And we trust, Father, that in the limitations that those entities have, that you would just use those institutions in the 
best way possible and not in a way that dehumanizes. And so we thank you for govern, governing bodies. We thank you for police officers. We thank you for people that are first responders and the role that they play to keep society healthy. We thank you, Father, for um, just being active in the lives of our teachers and the way that they confront challenges each day with families that have so much dysfunctionality and, um, and, and in many ways bureaucracy that is so heavy uh, in, in, in the way it oppresses and limits. And Lord, I just pray that your grace would just flow into all of the teachers' lives in the surrounding community so that they can be the salt and the light and the ones who bring to bear uh, the educational uh, requirements to develop uh, young, developing human beings into who they're called to be. And as we just see those things happen, we know that you have people who follow you and are part of your family in all of those places that we've mentioned. And we pray that you would just give them more and more influence to the lives of the people around them. And Father, as I uh, share this message today, you know the substance of it. You know how in so many ways your son came to defeat forces at work in the world and forces that are at work in our own hearts that keep us disconnected from you, that in so many ways cancel all the blessings that you intended for us. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, for helping us to recapture by what you've accomplished on the cross and on, uh, on Resurrection Sunday, you've shown us a new way. And the tyranny of the evil one who is keeping us oppressed is no longer the burden that we have in you. And we pray, Father, that the things that are inside of us that you're working on, that you're churning up to the surface, give us the courage to name them and to... Uh, and to replace whatever that is with uh, the things that are good and of you. And thank you for moving in that way. And, Lord, there's just so much that's so exciting that we see that um, we recognize uh, are the imprint of your handiwork, and we want to be a part of that. So tune our hearts and our minds to you as we pray together the Lord's Prayer. Would you pray with me now? Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us of our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. All right, well, if you have your Bibles with you or your electronic device or if you've memorized it or maybe you have uh, papyri or stone tablets, I mean, I don't even know what people keep the Bible on anymore, but hopefully you just keep it somewhere uh, in a way that uh, you can access it and hopefully uh, draw from uh, the voice of the Lord as you read it. Uh, so we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 22. Um, as you know, we've been going through this uh, devotional on um, Luke 20 through 24, leading to uh, the final, week of, final weeks of, of Jesus and everything that he had to endure for you and I. And if you're tracking carefully, you see that there is a conflict emerging, and it's based on who's in charge and who wants to be in charge, because at the end of the day, we're going to find at the end of this, uh, the game is going to be over, uh, but the battles are still going to be, uh, be fought. And uh, in a lot of ways, as we just live in the wake of everything that was accomplished on Easter, we still have to wake up every day and face the challenges of the forces of evil that are at work from the outside and our work on the inside. And as we do that, um, 
we're following the final weeks of Jesus, recognizing some things about him that help, I think, you and I uh, to live in that victory. Uh, so in our Bibles, um, we read these words, uh, and they're part of the, the devotional tomorrow from um, Luke chapter 22, 1 through 6. And uh, we are at this place where Jesus is almost at the end of the conflict that he's having with uh, the religious establishment and um, the political rulers. Uh, but there is one conflict that is underneath all the conflicts that he's facing. On the earthly plane, there are people that are opposing him, but in the, in the, in the, in the unseen realm, in those spaces that we can only feel but not necessarily see and recognize that uh, something dark and sinister is truly at work in the world, and I don't think anybody disagrees with that, there is a foe that Jesus has. And it really is the primary reason why he came to earth. And I know a lot of us have been sort of brought up in the faith to believe that uh, the story of the Bible is really just about how we can escape this earth and, and ensure that we go to heaven. But when I read the Bible, I don't see that. What I see at the end of the Bible, and, and, and I think N.T. Wright had said this so well, and he's been such a champion of this, the Bible is really a story about the bringing back together of the reality of heaven and earth that was lost in the garden. And if you think about what we do in worship, everything that we do is working towards that end because that is God's end game. He is wanting to restore the creation back to the way he designed it to function and its creational purpose and design. And as he does that, he calls us to follow the path of Jesus as he proclaims the kingdom reality, which in many ways is just, it, it's just the, the, the first fruits, it's the harbinger of the realities that will define life forever and ever. But there is one opposing reality that we all have to live with every day, and that is the presence of evil. Why bad things happen to good people? Why things happen around the world every day, so much so that we have an industry called the news that centers on the bad. And there's no shortage, is there? And it just underscores the kind of conflict that is in place. Because as John writes, there is a ruler of this world. He is the prince of this world. And John said when he wrote that, there's one who claims that title, and it isn't Jesus. It is Satan. And as Satan claims that title, the last thing he wants to do is relinquish it. But the reality is, as we get past Easter, we discover something that not a lot of people are aware of. It's really good news. That Satan lost that title, and he lost that authority. But like those people that were fighting the Vietnam War months and sometimes years afterwards in certain skirmishes or places in World War II where they're still doing battle after it's already been declared that there's a, there's a, there's a ceasefire and a truce. It's the same thing. Evil still rages on like it's going to somehow, in the end, have the last word. But we're not, we're not necessarily there yet in our story. Because here, before Jesus accomplished what he did so powerfully on that bloodstained cross, 
there has been an escalation happening for three years. And it began right after Jesus' baptism, where when he was led into the desert, Satan appeared to him, and he tested him, and he tempted him, because he recognized that of all the threats that he had faced in his history of rule since the garden, this one person, Jesus, was going to be formidable. And through the course of the three years that Jesus was here, Satan inspired Jesus and the outcome of his kingdom rule. And what's so interesting is how Satan chose one person within the 12 people that were chosen, handpicked by Jesus to basically be mentored into the way of life that Jesus was showing them. And that one person we know in hindsight was Judas. And Judas was, um, as he was called by Jesus, he would be identified as a zealot. His belief was there would come a time when a king would arrive and he would throw the Romans and the Greeks and the Assyrians and the Persians and everybody else who's had their foot on our neck. The Messiah would come and he would set everything right again. He would reclaim the title of, um, of, of king once again without any foreign nation oppressing us, but rather we would live in the victory of that moment. And I really believe that he had that aspiration as a zealot. And when he saw Jesus and he recognized John the Baptist giving him credentials, and then he saw the miracles that Jesus performed, he says, I'm on board with that because I think he is going somewhere, and it's the place where I'm going. But as time went on, the way Jesus proclaimed that kingdom was a lot different than the way he expected it to unfold. And... I can't really do like a psychological profile on Judas, but I could say that if in the course of that three years, you saw in his mind something turning from, hey, I'm with him 100%, to that percentage point dropping each day just a little bit more, finally to the place where he said, I'm not about that life. And right around that time, because this is how Satan works, he finds our vulnerability, whatever that is, and he leverages it. And what he recognized in Judas was a disillusionment about his allegiance to Jesus. And he saw basically a way to get out and to actually recoup some of his losses. And it happened right here. So it says, now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And if you follow the Bible, the Passover is the most important event in the history of the Bible next to creation because it describes the exodus out of Egypt and the formation of God's people. So they celebrate it every year. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death because just imagine, even though these are religious people, don't confuse that with godly people, okay? It just means that somewhere along the way, they lost sight of the vision of who they were originally called to be. Power, maybe prestige, maybe just the fact that um, they got distracted. But in the end, they couldn't see God's purposes with clarity at all, and they saw Jesus primarily as a threat. 
And so in their mind, let's kill him and let's move on. But as they're trying to figure out how they're going to accomplish that, well, wouldn't you know it, the opportunity is served right up before them. They feared the people, so they didn't want to, want to do the dirty work, and they were looking for somebody else to do exactly the thing that um, they were plotting to accomplish, and they found him. So in the next verses, we read these, uh, these thoughts. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. So there's something going on here in the background of this great big celebration that's happening in Jerusalem. So if you imagine Jerusalem being filled normally with about 100,000 people, when Passover is happening, there's about a million people descending from all over the place to Jerusalem. And as they do, you know, there's all kinds of festivity happening. And in the middle of all of that chaos and crowd, uh, these guys are plotting the elimination of this person who's been such a disruptor for them, Jesus. And in the unseen realm, there is one who is saying, I've tried to get the religious establishment to put the brakes on this guy. They failed. I've tried various forms of attack, but there's one that I think that will work. And he is so desperate. He is so, so desperate to accomplish this that he does the thing that I don't think he's ever done before. And that is, he decided that he, was, he wasn't going to outsource this one. He wasn't going to trick somebody into doing his own dirty work. He was going to inhabit a life, the life of one of Jesus' closest people, so that he could undo him. And, you know, for us as believers, we know that our biggest vulnerability a lot of times are the people closest to us. If, if Satan can't get us, he will try to get the people that mean the most to us. Now, he really means business, and he's clever about that. And he sees that this is, of all the weaknesses that we couldn't find in Jesus, we at least have one. And so he motivates through the evil that's already stirred up in the hearts of the religious establishment, disagreement. And there's some words here that are in play that, that I, I want to I I just look at during the, during the course of this message. Because they define in a lot of ways my sense of who I am as a pastor, my sense of who I am as a follower of Jesus. And I believe they define your life as well. Because as you read the biblical story, these words actually are are key to the whole storyline. And the first one is authority. And it is that sense that God has created the earth in every way that he said each day, it is good, it is good, it is good, it is good. And then on the final day of creation, 
He made man, male and female, in his image. And what did he say? It is very good. Meaning that the creation was designed purposefully so that it all works together in a harmonious way, the creational design, and the crowning part of that is to place these two beings that, by the way, are made in his image. And do you know what it means to be made in God's image? It means to reflect the characteristics of the one who created you. And so when people see you, they should see him. And if our hearts are aligned with his, they will. And you've probably seen that where you've seen a person that said they went to church, but they were gossipy, and they were, you know, they, they, would, they had backbiting and, and just horrible ways of dealing with other people, and in so many ways just didn't really have those qualities that you think of when you see Jesus. And then there are people that you know that are <clears throat> devout followers of Jesus, that as soon as you come into that space where they're at, you just feel a peace. You feel that sense of love. You feel like you're almost in the presence of something that's larger than what you're seeing. And I've seen that often in people that have hearts that are devoted to Christ. It just, they just, it just oozes out of them in the best way possible. So these two were designed in a way to represent God here on earth and his intention for his creational design and they were told, hey, it is yours. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever given a car to a 16-year-old. Hey, it's yours. Now, some of us, some of you haven't been that foolish. Uh, I did, but I bought a car off of somebody for a dollar. And uh, they were getting rid of it, and they said, hey, you want this for your kids? I said, yeah. They said, well, give me a dollar, and you can have it. So I bought this car from a friend, and I gave it to my kids, and next thing you know it, uh, one of them is backing it out of the garage, only not opening up the garage door. Uh, you know, uh, another one's getting it stuck in the ditch. And, you know, I'm just thinking, I'm glad I only paid a dollar for this car. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where you're like, you know what's going to happen. And maybe you did it as well. I know I did it. My first car, yeah, I got into a wreck. Anybody else? Can I get an amen? Okay, fender bender, nothing serious, nobody died. Um, but uh, it was definitely a reflection of my inexperience as a person who could manage a car well. And then mix ice into the rotation. Anybody have any first experiences with ice? You know, ice, friction, brakes. There's no math here that adds up at all other than somebody could die. And perhaps you had that encounter where you almost hit somebody, or you did because you saw, I know nothing about driving on ice. And the thing about Adam and Eve was they were given more than a car. They were given a planet. And it was a lot of responsibility. And in that original mix, there was a sense of heaven and earth were together. And God was there to reinforce that and to guide them and all of that stuff. And there was one who was also responsible for the execution of this to be a success. And his name was Lucifer. And his idea was, you know what? I'm not liking the fact that I have greater capacity, greater intelligence... In all ways, by my, by my measure, I'm superior. And what am I supposed to do? Serve these idiots. And that really was his sense. And his idea was, I don't like how God's doing things. 
I think I could do it better. And so he took the naivete, the gullibility, perhaps just the lack of really thinking it through. Those two people, and he gets them to consent to something other than consenting to the will of God. They consent to another voice. And in, in effect, what they did was they forfeited their birthright to run the planet. And he said, I didn't do this. You did it. I, I suggested something, but you're the one who acted on it. Now you're responsible. And in effect, because you no longer consent to following him, but you followed my voice, I'll take the right to run the planet from you. And that really is the biblical story. And we know this because when Jesus was tempted, he was brought up to basically a place where he could see all of the kingdoms of the world. And what does Satan say? Hey, it's been given to me. It's been given to me, and I'll let you have some of it. All you got to do is just be, well, second in command. I'll be the first, you be the second, and it'll be great. And Jesus is like, there is only one response to you. And that is to worship the Lord our God and serve him only. Which wasn't exactly the response that he was hoping for. And the storyline of the Bible really has this mixture of what is happening on the human plane as people fall out of step with the will of God. They fall out of step with the creational purpose and design. And as a result, chaos happens personally, relationally, and environmentally. The world is not what it should be. But the people who were supposed to be in charge are no longer running the show. And the Bible also says this about Satan, that he has just one agenda, and that is to steal kill, and destroy. He's known as the deceiver. And the bottom line is he hates us. We are made in God's image, and every time he sees us, he sees God. And he does his best to distort who we are as we reflect and represent God in whatever way he possibly can, in a way that appeals to each of us in our own way of, of following desires or whatever. And as he does that, he finds great joy. In basically taking the life and the blessing away from us through disobedience. And the authority of the evil one, well, in, 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 in the next slide, Psalm 8 talks about how God made us. <clears throat> it actually says, um, you made him inferior only to yourself. You crown him with glory and honor. And talking about Adam and Eve, uh, the first, first people. You appointed him ruler over everything you made, <clears throat> and you placed him over all creation, meaning, meaning man in the general sense. And that really was the design. But what happened was, as you look back at the graphic, because this all sets us up to understand the text that we're reading. <clears throat> By design, originally... There was God, human beings, archangels, including Satan, and angels. But after the fall, 
And we read in Luke 4, the temptation of Jesus, and Hebrews 2, it's God, now Satan, as John says, is the ruler of this world, human beings, archangels, and angels. But the design has always been angels are here to serve us. They're here to ensure that we don't go off the rails. They're here to nudge us. They're here to basically not do the work for us, but they're here to influence us in ways that are unseen. And Hebrews says, don't you know that sometimes you're entertaining angels unaware? Well, it's a whole other sermon series, but just let's just accept the fact. There are unseen beings that are aligned with God that are doing their level best to keep us from going off the rails. Now, with all that kind of theological stuff in the background, you may be saying, Pastor, what does this have to do with authority? Well, some of you came in today and you said, hey, you didn't park where you normally park. I said, well, I can't park there anymore because it's muscle car parking. And if you notice, I brought my Honda truck, which is not even really a truck. I don't even know what it is. So it doesn't have much authority at all for anything. But it certainly isn't a muscle car, so by definition, I can't park over there with that thing. I guess that's the way it's been established. Well, there are, there are rules and there are laws, and there's heavenly law that basically says there are certain ways that authority is supposed to flow, and that is just it. And Satan plays within that set of rules because the rules say that if he's in any way guilty of doing something, then he's, he's, he's going to forfeit his right. So Satan always outsources the work, meaning that he influences people to get, to do it, get him to do it for them. You ever have a friend or maybe an older sister or older brother that whenever you were a kid, they would say, hey, come here. Go over there and do that one thing to that person. You know, my sister did that to me a few times till I got smart, and I said, what are you doing here? Because I'm getting in trouble, and you're coming up with the ideas. And then it was war for about five years, but we reconciled, sort of, kind of. But I did, I did tell on her when she wrecked uh, her dad's car, and she denied it. I said, no, she did it. And, but anyway, you see that kind of stuff that happens where you create conditions so that you can find a person to do the dirty work for you. And that's how he kept his status. He didn't break any rules. He just influenced other people to break them. That's how I understand it. Except for now. For now. Because the scripture says, I've, from Satan's point of view, I have tried to get this done in 10 different ways. And these buffoons running the religious establishment coming up to Jesus, and as you've been reading devotionally, taking him on, and he's just been beating them left and right and taking them to the woodshed. If you want a job done right, you got to do it yourself. And he has such tunnel vision about this that he forgets that if he engages with it himself, he's going to forfeit his right to rule. Keep that in mind, because when we read Game Over, That primarily is what this is about. It's Jesus recapturing our birthright and for us participating once again in that birthright as people who are being remade into his image and his likeness. And as we look at those words, I think of my friend um, Joe Henderson. And I believe this is an accurate quote. Teresa, you can correct me. But I was stunned when Joe said this to me. He said, you know, I... I really haven't always been the person that you think I am. Now, I think Joe's always been a solid guy with good character. 
But the issue that he had was really how much he was allowing God to take the reign in his life. And so he shared that, um, well, when I was younger, yeah, God was there, and I reluctantly took hold of his finger, and he kind of just dragged me along. But I wasn't really in staff with what he was wanting to do. I just knew he was there and probably a resource if I really needed him. But when I saw the need to help my grandson Charlie develop his faith, I finally took a hold of your hand and you led me along. And I think that that is so telling for all of us. Because we'd come to a place where we're like, God, you fit my world. But it's my world. And then through trial, through challenges, and through, if nothing else, a vision for a young man to become who he's supposed to become, he recognized that the only way for that to be accomplished was for me to get serious about my relationship with God. And so if you, if you, if you remember Joe, he loved the Lord. And if you knew much about him, you knew that he was spending time on the phone with his daughters. He's praying for his Charlie now, who is working in the military overseas in pretty sketchy conditions. And he would call his daughter. Teresa didn't know that your sister and your dad were having a Bible study. He was just really discreet about it. But it was, it was because something changed inside of him where the, not just the presence of God, but the authority of God began to flow in and through his life in ways that he never really imagined. Things started happening inside of him because he got close to God. He basically said, God, I know you go where you're wanted, and I want you in my life in whatever form that needs to take so that I can influence him. And I think that's pretty cool because there's just a lot there to take away. And as um, you just think about that at the ground level, we toggle back to Satan whose agenda is completely different. And Isaiah talks about it in 14. And it says this, you were determined to climb to heaven and place your throne above the highest stars. And you thought you would sit like a king and you said you would climb to the tops of the clouds and be like the Almighty. Meaning that God, I don't even want you close. I just want my own world by my own design. And I honestly think that when you, when you look at temptation, for example, you start to see its pattern. It's kind of like the temptation to want my own thing, the temptation to get my own way, and the temptation to make it all about me. But I have to tell you, the creation was not designed to serve us in that way. It was designed for us to serve God and know the blessing of his creation. But the emphasis is on God. He has to be in the equation for your life and mine to work. 
And the world that Jesus walked into was under a different authority because people had consented to something that wasn't in order. And consent's an interesting word. And I don't know if you've ever thought about it much. I know, you know, if it's used in the news or whatever, it's about, you know, sex or maybe kids or something like that. But the reality is it's a legal term, and I'm not denying what I just, you know, what I just mentioned. But in reality, it's a legal term that says it is the compliance in or approval of what is done or proposed by another. It basically says I have this sense of my own will and I'm going to choose to follow the will of another person, meaning that there is an agreement that I'm making with them that kind of makes me legally bound. So, you know, when you go to the hospital and they say, can you fill out these forms? And you're like, hey, I wasn't feeling any pain with this broken arm that had a compound fracture until you said all those forms. Could you give me a painkiller now? Because, you know, by the time you get done, um, you're just thinking, I don't even know what I signed. But basically what you signed was a consent form. Because people who, who are serious about agreements are serious about how you agree or don't agree. And God, of all people, is the most serious about that. Say what you want, but when we consent to something, we are actually enabling something to have the right in our lives. Now, that's kind of legalese, and I'm not an, a lawyer beyond that. And I'm not, you know... Misney who makes them pay, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm just Leonard. Um, but that's, that's the way it is. And as um, you look at that, I, I think what I'm trying to drive at, if you have any takeaways from this message, it's to understand that the framework of the Bible centers on who's in control. And rightfully so. And as, you, as, we, as I've been processing this for a long time in my study of the giants and the fallen angels and all of that stuff, I like what Charles Kraft says in his book, I Give You Authority. He said, at creation, therefore, authority of several kinds was given to Adam and Eve. Authority to carry the image of God, authority to create children in God's image, authority over all of creation. All would have gone well with God over everything, humans under him and angels serving both of them, if God's enemy, Lucifer, had not succeeded in enticing Adam to misuse his authority by giving it all away. And you really have to understand that. Because the only way for heaven and earth to be reconstituted once again is for this issue of who's in charge to be settled. And you can't have two people in charge of one thing. Have you ever worked for somebody and one boss says do this and another boss says that? And then you get chastised because you did it the wrong way because you followed that boss? Anybody ever have that? And you're like, this is chaos, this is madness. God says, there's a way that I've created things, and it has to follow a certain order. And the only way that that can happen is for us to recognize that we're lost. And not only that, we've been deceived. We've been taught to believe a lot of things about our lives that actually as they've played out, we've said, these don't make any sense. I'm just saying, if you lived through the 70s, you know what I'm talking about. 
But the fact of the matter is, when Jesus came, he did something pretty special. He showed us how, even though we've been given the right and the will to run our own lives, he showed us how to do that properly. There's some truths that I've told my kids because I, I've always thought, I don't want other people telling you how to think. I want you to recognize that God gave you personal agency as your right. So I've always said, and this is a nerdy statement, and they'll tell you this, and you're going to forget it. You're going to think, why did you bother me with all that? But I've always said self-sovereignty is the ability to exercise agency under a given set of conditions. What does that mean? It means that you can choose to do things under a given set of conditions if you have the ability to do them. For example, if I am not equipped to drive a car and I get behind the wheel and I'm trying to exercise agency, I'm not demonstrating any kind of self-sovereignty because I don't have control. If I'm learning how to do woodworking and I become a master craftsman, now I'm equipped to have sovereignty over woodworking, and if I see a design, I can now make it because I know how. But if I knew nothing about woodworking, I would have no sovereignty whatsoever. And the same would apply to everything that you guys are good at. But there are things that somebody would say, hey, can you help me with my taxes? And I would say, I have very little self-sovereignty in that area. You probably would be best to call H&R Block or something. I mean, there are, when you are equipped and are good at something, then you can kind of have sovereignty over that. And there are a lot of people who get really good at doing things that you marvel at their ability, but the problem is they may just be doing it for themselves. And here's where Jesus comes in. He came to earth, and the writer of Hebrews tells us in 5.8 even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. In this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest, and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. And God designated him to be a high priest in the order of Melchizedek. Now, I don't want to fly too, over your, too far over your heads, but I just want to say this. Jesus had self-sovereignty. He had the ability to choose whichever way he wanted to go. And in the garden, we saw him struggle. But ultimately, he said, in my suffering, I'm still going to choose the way of the Father because the way of the Father is really the only way because he's the one who made this world that we live in and by design how humanity should live under those conditions. And I'm going to follow that script. And so when he learned obedience through suffering, I think that gives him credibility. Because what if God came and he said, I'm going to be like you, but it's sort of like, you know, you're throwing money at a problem, and then you drive your limousine around the neighborhood where the problem's happening, and then you say, hey, didn't we do good work? You know, as opposed to, you know, the stuff that you see happening with, you know, with, with, like with Brightside. And, and our people going down there and just engaging with it. Jesus engaged with the reality of our world to a point where he suffered. And in that suffering, he, he showed us that in your pain, you learn to trust God because God will fi- help you find a way. In your pain, you recognize that in the dark, in the valley of the shadow of death, God is with you. 
And here's what I've discovered as a follower of Jesus. It is usually in pain and suffering that I hear God's voice most clearly. It's usually in pain and suffering that my willfulness tends to step aside and I say, God, help me to follow you or help me. And I honestly think that's why at the end of the day, God says, I'm going to let evil persist. Because in some ways, it brings up our vulnerabilities, and it says, this is not right. And the devil loves to showcase your vulnerabilities and my vulnerabilities where we are not right with God. And in this season, God has just been churning this to the surface, bit by bit in all of us, so that when we see it, we know, yeah, Lord, help me to put that right too. Because you're going somewhere with this. Lord Jesus, save me. And help me to live like you lived. Help my self-sovereignty, which I love to learn new things and be capable of doing new things so that as I'm equipped, I can see I can do that and I can do that and I can do that. And I feel sorry for people who just spend all their time on devices and never learn how to do all kinds of stuff. They're actually reducing their self-sovereignty where they get out into the world and they're like, I don't know how to do anything. And the devil says, gotcha. But I also feel sorry for people who learn self-sovereignty and they use it only for themselves. And then they end badly because it's only always been about them. But I love people who take their self-sovereignty and the paradox is they learn to say, not my will, but your will, God. I want to use this for you. And that really is the life of a believer. Taking what we have and what we can do and expanding on that, but not using it for ourselves, but for him, for his community of believers. I appreciate you guys coming up here and using that self-sovereignty for music to bless us out of obedience. That's really what God is calling us to do. And the reason why Judas, with all that training that he had, that primo opportunity to be mentored, threw it away was because he said, not your will, but my will be done. And you know what? God is a gentleman. He believes in authority. He believes in consent. But he also, getting back to those four things, knows that Satan wants to cancel you when you go down that path. Have you ever heard of cancel culture? I wonder where that came from. Do you think God wants to cancel anybody? For God so loved the world that he canceled some and kept others? Or does he want everyone to come to a saving knowledge of who he is so that we can be right with God once again? God's not about to cancel except for Satan. And those who should have known better to begin with, Jesus is on a mission to cancel him. And the only way that we can participate in that is with another word that we find called allegiance. Allegiance. God isn't saying, hey, believe in me. Like you got some idea, you've done the math, and you say, there must be a God. He is saying, believe in me, as in 
what I do, you do. That's what belief means. It's allegiance. It means that your body and your mind and your heart and your soul are all conforming to his will and purpose. And when that happens, and what is so cool about being a pastor in this church right now is I am seeing that happen. It's a happy place for me when we all say, hey, not my will, but his will be done. And we keep our egos in check, and we ask him with sincere and hopefully humble hearts, Lord, what next? What next in me? What next out there? Because the devil is saying, I don't want you to do any of that stuff. And I'll just conclude with this sort of mega thought for a minute. My wife asked me, because there was a new show on cryptids and fairies and all that stuff, and she says, you know, what, what is this about? Why, is, why are everybody so fixated on all of this stuff? And my answer has been something I've been reflecting on for a long time. I honestly think that Satan uses entertainment to get us to accept things that are not the way the creation should be. And when you read at the end of the book, almost near the end of the book of Revelation, and I'm almost done, I, I promise you. I'm, I'm seriously, you know, I'm Leonard, I promise. At the end of the book of Revelation, you know, there, there is the, the unchaining of the evil one. And the question's always been, why, why would God do that? I don't think God does it. I think we consent for it. I think we ask for it. I think he is so calculating in the long game that he's saying, I want to set these people up to believe this stuff so much that they're going to want me. And like so many things that God sees in the hearts and minds of people, he says, if you want it, then I'll give it to you. And I honestly think the unleashing of the evil one is going to happen by consent. It's not that God's going to do it, but God's going to do it reluctantly. At least that's my theory. Because we've been so led astray in our thinking to think as up as down and right as left and wrong as right. But all this occult stuff is just priming us for that big ask. Hey, let us have him. Let's set up some tarot card places in Salem. How about some white witchcraft over here? And most of the people in the younger generation, as much as I enjoy the Harry Potter stuff, in a lot of ways this kind of primed us to say, hey, that's okay. Again, I'm not going to go there. I'm just saying that people question whether or not the Christian narrative is really true, and there are other pathways to accessing power, ways to enhance my romance life, ways to, you know, curse somebody who really done me wrong. And I think he's just priming us for the big ask. But I'm not worried about that as much as God priming you and I for the kingdom. Because that is the only hope that the world has. And the good news is Satan consented. And when an innocent man hangs on a cross and he's culpable in the in the backroom conversation and action to murdering an innocent person, notwithstanding the fact he's the son of God, he's guilty. He's guilty. He is no longer fit to own this place. 
innocent one is. So be careful what you consent to. And maybe right now, unless you've consented to Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, Scripture is very clear. You are under the dominion of the evil one, and you need saved. I can't, I can't, I can't say it any better than that. And all Jesus is saying is, do you consent to accepting me as your Lord and Savior? And the simple answer is yes. And then we start to follow him in obedience. And you may think obedience is a bad word, like, dang, I can't do what I want to do. But I've, I've enjoyed, especially working with Amy and, and because and, and, and other people here in this church, where I've seen the joy of obedience. And that's pretty fresh. It's not something to begrudge, but rather it's just a way of finding life again. And I'm so proud of our church for wanting to walk into that life. Four minutes ago, I said I was going to be done. I'm done. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are faithful, even to the point of death. And you suffered in ways that we can't even imagine. Torment from the people around you, torment from the forces of hell against you. And you never wavered. And you did that, I believe, for one reason and one alone, and that is us. So we come before you humbled, with grateful hearts, trusting you with our lives, because your life reflects the life of the Father. Because when we see you, Lord Jesus, we see the Father. You image him perfectly. And Lord, that is so compelling in this season of darkness that our world is in. We just pray that you continue to pull us into that space where we know joy and we know life and we know light. And even if our sufferings are there, they're light and momentary in light of what you've given us. So Father, I pray that you you would give us a desire to want you because we know you go where you're wanted. And then give us a heart to receive you as we open ourselves to you. I just pray for anyone here who hasn't experienced the joy of salvation that you would give us the opportunity to show whoever that is who's gathered what that looks like. And then help us to be faithful to our calling so that when people see us, Lord, they see you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. I can add much to what Leonard says, <clears throat> what he told us, but um, I'm going to try. <clears throat> I like in the Bible how Jesus uses questions a lot, and <clears throat> I'd like to maybe just do the same thing. Um, how many of you have had trials in your life? 
Just raise your hand. How many of you have had blessings in your life? Just raise your hand. Um, <clears throat> a lot of your trials, I know a lot of you, and just think about what you've been through. I know a lot of them have been terrible. We need to be there for each other through those trials. And we can also bless each other through those trials. <clears throat> and when you think about the trials that Jesus went through, and the frustrations and everything, <clears throat> pretty amazing. Um, he let, he let evil put him up on the cross and crucify him. And uh, he, um, I guess, I don't know if how you say it, he kind of played into their hands. But something happened. He arose from the dead and he, show, he showed evil who he was. And uh, that, that's why we follow him. So um, let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us and for getting us through our trials and maybe the trials make us stronger. I don't think Jesus wants a bunch of wimps. But, um, these emblems that we're about to partake of sure reminds us of what you did for us. And uh, that you broke your body and you shed your blood for us. And we want you by our side all the time. And we do this in remembrance of you. And I hope that we um, give you the honor and the glory for what you've done. And that it makes us strong enough that we can um, go out and help your will be done. In these things we pray in your name. Nice being with you today. If you'd like to stand, we'll close with one song. If you got to get going to your group or whatever, feel free.
please bow your heads and pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for a beautiful, beautiful Sunday. We all get to stand here and worship in a free church with a free well-being, Lord. Even though sin has entered this, this world and we have made dark, dark mistakes, we know that you are still here and you are our light, that we need to follow you. Please help us remember what Leonard said today. May his amazing, amazing sermon and that we can go in peace and go in love. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys.